Today we're looking at how the Bible can be experienced. And, and I took this question as uh, more from those that are a skeptic. Why, why should we uh, consider what's in here more important than anything else we read anywhere else? And certainly given the passage that we sometimes find, how do we come to grips with its authority over our lives? And typically when I uh, talk to people and have a session on the Bible and, and how to interpret it, I, I invite people uh, after I've shared uh, five or six positions or typical approaches to the Bible, and then I invite them to come up and, and stand there and just to people to see that uh, it's okay to look differently. Now, we don't have enough space here for everybody, although we came close this morning. But uh, this is kind of a continuum. And so here I'd see people that look at the Bible uh, as fully inerrant in every way possible, infallible. You should uh, look at it and interpret it literally. And they believe that any inconsistencies that might be there or any historical inaccuracies uh, can be explained if we had the original manuscripts or simply there's just information we don't have. Over here would be people, if you're familiar with Andy Stanley, he probably fits in this uh, category, they look at the Bible as limited inerrancy. In other words, they, they, they come to accept that there are some inconsistencies and, and some historical things, some different views of how the world is shaped, because in the Bible the world's flat, as, as it's described. Um, but they believe in matters of faith, in matters of salvation, it is inerrant and therefore reliable for matters of morality and faith. Here might be people that uh, whether they thought it through or not, a lot of people operate in this category. Uh, these are people that really like the New Testament but don't really like reading the Old Testament. A lot of stuff in there they can't quite figure out. And, and so even though the historic church has always affirmed the inspiration of all Scripture, uh, they tend to practically say, well, we're a people of the New Testament and it replaces whatever we find in the Old Testament. Here would be people if you've read any books by Adam Hamilton, he probably falls in this category. And that's where uh, the Bible is taken seriously and seen as sacred, but we need to understand its historical context and the purposes that were trying to be achieved by the original writer in the original situation and their time first before we try to find what truth is relevant to our culture. The challenge with this position is always what do you consider as descriptive truth in the Bible that's related to their time and what is prescriptive truth that's applicable to all times? And you got people over here that say, you know, the Bible's got a lot of good stuff in it, so read it for your own benefit and you can pick and choose what you want. And then there's probably people over here that have read the Bible, but they see it as no different than any other religious literature and it, whatever value it has, it's whatever you take from it. Now, the importance of looking at this continuum is, for one, it helps explain why good Christians sometimes disagree on very important issues. But it's also important because sometimes there's people here, especially looking through the world through eyes of science and so forth, they have a hard time when all they hear is perspectives that are over here. And if we're going to be able to defend the faith and able to convince people the value that the scriptures can have in their lives, we need to help understand the challenges the scriptures have and affirm that people can approach it in different ways. So if we're going to convince a skeptic of the Bible, whether you are one or whether you have a friend that's one, you'd like to try to encourage their faith, I think we have to acknowledge the human element 
that is in its creation. Now, I believe that this, is in, this book is inspired by God. I also believe the Holy Spirit influenced the selection of the books that went into its canon. But I also believe that God's revelation found in the Bible was mediated through human beings who communicated their experience of God through the filters of their own understanding and the beliefs of their day. I could give us several examples here, but just for the sake of time, let me focus on the the biggest issue I often hear people complain about. They say that the Bible that I read in the Old Testament, God seems so angry and full of wrath, and then you get to the New Testament, and there's just so much more love. How can that be? And there's plenty of passages that give you that impression. We could talk about the Levitical law, the law of Moses. You find passages there that calls for the death penalty, not just for murder, but also for a child who has a persistent rebelliousness. I know sometimes we feel like killing them, but in the Old Testament, you actually could. Or for hitting or cursing their parents. You could be put to death for working on the Sabbath. You could be put to death for premarital sex or for adultery. As we've shared before, Moses had the legal right to put Mary to death when he found out her news. It doesn't seem to look like the mercy and grace that we see demonstrated in Jesus, does it? And sometimes God's anger seems to be out of proportion to the sin that it's describing. Remember the story in Exodus chapter 32 when Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments? And down below, his brother Aaron is trying to deal with all the people of Israel who are getting restless and complaining. And so he gathers all the gold and they melt it down into an image of a golden calf, which was certainly an image used by the religion Baal. When Moses comes down, he says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of the tribe of Levi run to him. And Moses says to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side. Each of you go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. And it says the sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and they killed some 3,000 that day. What's even more disturbing is there's a scripture that seems to affirm that that is how the Levites got consecrated to become the priestly tribe that oversaw the temple worship that followed when they became a nation that was organized. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18, we find what is, we would call today a genocide, something we find abhorrent that still exists and happens today. There God calls for the Israelites to take the land of the Canaanites and not only to displace the Canaanites and all the different peoples within that land, but to annihilate them as an act of devotion to God, much like an animal sacrifice that would be a part of, of a sacrifice made in the temple. The same cause made when they conquer the city of Jericho and its fall, its city walls fall. Now it's easy to gloss over these incidents when we're just trying to find some good devotional material to encourage our faith. But if we're to relate the faith to people that are skeptical, who wonder about the faith, if we're going to have something to say to atheists, we need to come to grips with the moral and theological dilemmas this creates. It just doesn't seem to match the God that we see who comes down on earth, who eats with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. It doesn't seem to match 
the Jesus we see on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I would suggest that we have to interpret these difficult passages through the cultural context in which they are written. To recognize the inhumane commands represented the understanding of writers of their day who had a different understanding of God and of the world around them in their time. Moses and Joshua and David were warriors living in times where violence was the norm of the world. And God's purposes were often seen, accomplished in violent ways. The Old Testament passages about violence and war tell us more about the people who wrote them and the times they were living in than about the God in whose name they claimed authority to do these things. Perhaps another way to look at it is uh, how many of you seen the movie Braveheart? Remember the story about William Wallace who led the Scots to their independence, at least for a time, from the nation of England. Now, if you read what is written about William Wallace in the nation of England, he sounds like a barbarian, but to the Scots, he was a hero. And these accounts that we find were written centuries later, after the fact, in order to lift Moses and David and Joshua's heroes of the faith, encouraging people to stay committed to hold the nation together in times that were not so good. Here is where I think it's important to make a couple points about what we mean about the inspiration of Scripture. First of all, I need to tell you that historic Christianity has never said that the Bible is dictated by God and then written down. The Koran is believed by most Muslims to be dictated by God. The Book of Mormon is believed to be dictated by God to Adam Smith and those words written down. But nowhere in the Bible do you find anywhere that it suggests or claims to be dictated by God. Probably the most intriguing passage we have comes from 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. Now the challenge we have is trying to figure out what this passage means. First of all, you have the challenge of what is considered scripture because none of the New Testament would have been there when this was written. But the second challenge is what is meant by that word theo Nestos. It's actually a compound word. Theo means God, and Nestos talks about the breath of God or to blow. And the challenge we have is this word is found nowhere else in our Bibles. Matter of fact, it's found nowhere else in any Greek literature previous to this time of writing. It appears to be a word that Paul invented. You know, we're pretty good at inventing words today, putting new words together, right? That seems to be what Paul did. He put these words together to try to make a statement about how Scripture can be lived out in our lives. And we don't really know for sure exactly what he means by it. It almost seems to be metaphorical. He didn't seem to be suggesting exactly in some technical way the way Scripture comes together. He's trying to suggest what Scripture can do. And the best example we have of it is to look at this root word, paneo, which means spirit. That word's used in the creation story. 
In Genesis 2, 7, it describes, Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Paul understands that these words in the Bible were written by human beings, but then he suggests that when the Spirit of God's brought to them, they come alive. They have power, power to transform, power to change. It animates them. So the authors write scriptures, God breathes on them, and the words come to life. The power is not in the words themselves, but they're tools used by God when the Spirit is infused with them. Another point I should say about the Bible, we often refer to this as the Word of God, right? Sometimes we say the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Sometimes when I read a scripture, I I conclude by saying, may God bless his holy word. But the question we should ask ourselves is, is the Bible itself, this book as we have it in its form, the word of God, or does it contain the word of God? And I challenge you to study how that phrase is used in the Bible over and over. The word of God, that phrase shows up 41 times in the Bible. The phrase, the word of the Lord, appears 260 times in the Bible. But rarely does it refer to something written down in a scroll or in a book. Most often it refers to a message of God that's heard or spoken or preached. And I could share many examples. I won't go through all of them, but let's throw some up on the screen and just invite you to look at them at another time. But just John the Baptist shares the word of God in the wilderness. Jesus preached and teaches on the banks of the Sea of Galilee the word of God. The seed that's in the parable of the sower is described as the word of God. The apostles, several times in Acts, are filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. The only place that we find that the word of God is made reference to in something written is in Luke 4, verses 16 through 20, where Jesus stands up and opens the scrolls and says, the good news is calling for good news to the poor, release to the prisoners, sight to the blind, and liberation to the pressed. The word of God is used in the Bible almost always as a direct message from God to slows through angels, directly to the heart of the individual, through dreams and visions, or through preaching or teaching, or sometimes even through a whisper. And what is the ultimate expression of the word of God? What do we find in the first chapter of John? It says, And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory is of Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Who is that referring to? Jesus. Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment. He is the one that is infallible and inerrant who contains the heart of God in every way possible. Wrapped in Jesus is the character and heart and flesh of God. And isn't that what our scripture today said? Jesus said, I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. And he says to go and teach and obey everything that I have commanded you. So let me share my understanding of the inspiration of scripture. Let me read it to make sure I say it right. If you want it later, I'll email it to you. 
The Bible as a book by itself is not the word of God. It is the record of God's revelation, and its greatest authority comes in how best it reflects the coming of God to the human race and the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible, when read well, has the potential to become the living, dynamic word of God when its contents connect with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They're just words until the Holy Spirit fills them with power, and then they can transform our lives and our world. Adam Hamilton, in his book about Scripture, shares what I think is an excellent analogy. It's not perfect. No analogy is, but it, it really says a lot. What he does, he, he says he's got a book in his library. It's a book about Steve Jobs. And it's signed by the author. Now, the author is not Steve Jobs. It's signed by Walter Isaacson. Walter Isaacson was invited by Steve Jobs before he died to write an authorized biography. Walter Isaacson's a pretty impressive guy himself. He was the editor of Time Magazine. But Adam Hamilton didn't buy the book to learn about Walter Isaacson. He bought the book to learn about Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computer. And this is what we call an authorized biography, which means that Jobs actually invited Isaacson to write it. The two men met. They spent hours together. They talked by phone. He was given special photographs and letters and materials that no one else had access to. Jobs is actually directly quoted frequently by Isaacson. Isaacson did everything he could to be able to faithfully represent him. Now, if Steve Jobs was still alive, he'd probably read that book and say, you know, you did a pretty good job, but there's a few places that didn't, that's not quite right. And that would be okay, because nobody would write it perfectly. Well, the Bible is the biography God of God, not the autobiography. He didn't write it himself, but it's an authorized biography. The biblical authors walked with God and experienced God. They had relationship with God. The gospel writers were closer to Jesus than any of our contemporary writers could ever be. As a matter of fact, the criteria for what decides whether a book gets into the Bible in the canon, first of all, is considered its proximity to Jesus himself. The gospel accounts are the oral traditions that were handed down by the people who walked with Jesus and remembered well and then collected and put into what we have. The Apostle Paul, when he writes his letters, are just 30 years after the death of Jesus. He shares about the resurrection accounts. And when he's writing, there's people in the accounts that he's describing that are still alive who confirm, can confirm what he is writing down, which adds to their authority. If you want to know God, there's no other book that you can read that will help you know him or his will for your life like the authorized biography. You can read God's actual words in some of its pages. You'll also hear the human author's reflections upon God and their attempts to put into words the nature and character and will of God. But the fact that the Bible is not an autobiography 
is precisely the distinction that helps us understand the complicated passages that we sometimes find in it. It's the distinction between the autobiography and biography that makes sense of these difficult passages. So I hope that helps you understand how the Bible can become the word of God for our lives, how it can be that that revelation that transforms and changes who we are. It paints a picture of God so powerful that we want that God in our lives. It describes us as we are, humble as we should be, and how we need to seek God's spirit to transform us. That's when the Bible becomes the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this gift. May we hold it sacred. May we take it seriously. May we truly spend time with it so that it has the ability and the opportunity to change who we are and how we relate to others and especially how we know and understand you and relate to you. Bless us with its words so it can become your word to us. Amen.